if you've looked at the screen, you'll see we're in Colossians 2, 8 through 15, 2, 8 through 15, verses 8 through 15 of Colossians chapter 2. I'll go ahead and read us, read it for us here in a moment. But first, let me ask you a question. Let me ask you this question. What role does philosophy play in our world and in our lives? What role does philosophy play in our world and in our lives? I imagine if I say the word philosophy, that probably conjures up different things in different people's minds as you think back maybe to school when you covered ancient Greece in history class, and maybe Socrates, Plato, Aristotle, those kinds of guys. Or maybe you associate it with you know, kind of a mode of thought like from, from the Far East, like Confucius. If you had to spend time doing philosophy in higher education, uh, maybe you recall your least favorite class. Maybe. <laughs> Again, if you knew philosophy majors in college, you might be thinking, ah, the major for smart guys that like to paint fences, right? Because there's not much money in that, not much money in old philosophy. So for me, it actually reminds me of one of my absolute favorite classes that I took in college. Uh, my wife took the same class. This is why when the two of us get into debates, it's just fabulous, and we really ought to sell tickets. It's philosophy of religion, philosophy of religion. And in a funny sort of you know, turn of events, I just mentioned a moment ago, I was not good at math. After I took philosophy in college, it actually taught me to be better at math. I don't know if it was the logic or what it was, uh, but I got better, and I, so I guess logic and philosophy had a good practical transfer for me. And so truth be told, each of us has a philosophy. Each of us has a way of thinking, an adherence to what we think wise, which guides us and helps us parse through this world. TV, the movies we watch, they present a philosophy to us. They communicate different kinds of philosophy. Literature, it's often applied philosophy. I can remember back in my AP Lit class, we were talking in Sunday school for just a second about AP classes. AP Literature, senior of high school, uh, we were discussing the book Crime and Punishment. And uh, it was interesting because you could find out a lot about how the different philosophies of students in the class worked by discussing this. So in that situation, it turned out to be pretty okay with most of my classmates, if you were a murderer, as long as you were the main character of the book. It revealed something about our way of thinking. If something is an ism, maybe Confucianism, right? It's probably a philosophy, or at least a way of thinking. And so our way of thinking, our ways of thinking, the things that are our guiding principles, those are important. They direct what we do. Everyone has one of these. Our mode of thinking might only be to satisfy whatever our urges are. Not so much thinking is required there, but make no mistake, it still is a mode of thinking. We'll see today how Paul continues to develop this argument about the centrality of Jesus in our lives and why that's important in light of who Jesus is, who we are, and who we are living in relation to Him. So... Colossians 2, 8 through 15, let's read. Colossians 2, 8 through 15. See to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit, according to human tradition, according to the elemental spirits of the world, and not according to Christ. For in Him the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily, and you have been fulfilled in, or excuse me, you have been filled in Him, who is the head of all rule, and authority, in him you also were circumcised with a circumcision made without hands, by putting off the body of the flesh 
by the circumcision of Christ, having been buried with him in baptism, into which you were also raised with him, through faith and the powerful working of God, who raised him from the dead. And you who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. So there's the text. Here's the point he's making. Don't be taken captive by human wisdom. Don't be taken captive by human wisdom. Paul sets this argument up in this section in a way that's kind of backward compared to how he will do it in other places. So here, he says what he wants to say, and then he provides the support. He's begun at the top, and then he'll show you how he got there after. It's in contrast to how he lays it out in, say, Romans, where he starts with the need for the gospel in Romans 1, then explains how it works, and then arrives at that big old glorious proclamation in Romans 8, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Here it's the opposite. The payoff is going to come first, and then we'll climb down the ladder to see how he got there. So then, look at verse 8. You can look at verse 8. No guide lesser than Christ. Verse 8, no guide lesser than Christ. The Colossian Christians are to have no guide lesser than Christ. Verse 8 is one of those that you can just kind of hang on its own without its context, and it's going to mean the same thing. And the context of the verse only turns up the volume on what he says here. No guidance lesser than Christ. Not philosophy, not human tradition, not the elemental or basic or rudimentary spirits of the world. No guidance lesser than Christ. So what do we make of these things? We're not to be taken captive to these things. What do we make of them? Let's start with philosophy and then empty deceit. There are a few things that we can kind of sort through here, and this will by no means be comprehensive, okay? This isn't going to say everything that we could say. Uh, but for one, if a mode of thought uses Jesus as a jumping-off point, as a means to get something else, stay away from it. If it's using Jesus as a means, stay away from it. If it's using Jesus, for example, to get to health and wealth then health and wealth are actually the gods of that way of thinking. And Jesus is the means. But church, Jesus is not the justification for you to get to some other goal. Instead, as we'll see later, Jesus is your justifier to bring you in fellowship with the Father. You see the difference? He's not the justification to get to a thing. He is your justifier before the Father. Jesus is not a justification for good health, material wealth, secret knowledge, greater power, influence, or anything like that. He's not an excuse for you or me to pander to our base appetites and inclinations. He's not to be wed to those things. He's not to be wed to rival claims on ultimate reality, salvation, spiritual insight, or any of the rest of that stuff. And that covers just about everything that could offend somebody in here who's not currently walking with Jesus. And so why put it this way, you might be asking. Why why say it that way? So confrontational. Because it's never Jesus and, and it's never Jesus plus. 
which is what we would actually be tempted towards as Christians. This would be the snare of the Old Testament saints. It's not that they always completely disregarded Yahweh or Jehovah. It's that it was Yahweh plus Baal. Yahweh plus something else. Many things present themselves to us, to our minds. They often appeal to our unique sensibilities, our desires, but they're empty. And these ways of thinking then deceive us. And those who are deceived often seek out others to join them in their own deception. It's remarkable to me, and again, I say this, you know, if I point a finger, I've got the three pointing right back at me. How is it that people who often believe in utter nonsense are 0% embarrassed to tell everyone about it, and here I am with God's Word, this truth that I'm 100% convinced of, and I shrink back from saying it. We talked about the invisible cats thing from C.S. Lewis a week or two ago, and you know, somebody, if they believe in invisible cats, they will tell you they believe in invisible cats, and they're not ashamed of that. And here I am with the gospel of Christ, oftentimes nervous to share because of what, the scorn? Anyway, as we saw in a previous text, this isn't this admonition against being taken captive by philosophy. It's not a prohibition of thinking through your faith or organizing your thoughts. Understanding the claims of the Bible and how they fit together with logical consistency is an admirable task. We actually did this a little bit in Sunday school this morning. Talked about how different pieces of salvation work together. We present a coherent gospel. It's a coherent gospel. And if Christ is going to be the agent of creation and the one who holds it all together, then we have a God whose revelation, His speech about Himself it will correspond with the world that He has made. Often when the Scripture posits an argument against idolatry, it will call into question the intellect, the logic of the thinking of the people worshiping the idol, such as in Isaiah 44. You don't have to turn there. I'll just read it for you. But this is, if you're taking notes for later, you want to look this up. This is one of my favorite texts from Isaiah, Isaiah 44. I'll read verses 12 through 17. And Isaiah says this. He says, The ironsmith takes a cutting tool and works it over the coals. He fashions it with hammers and works it with his strong arm. He becomes hungry and his strength fails. He drinks no water and is faint. Where's this going? You'll see in a second. The carpenter stretches a line. He marks it out with a pencil. He shapes it with planes and marks it with a compass. He shapes it into the figure of a man with the beauty of a man to dwell in a house. He cuts down cedars or he chooses a cypress tree or an oak and lets it grow strong among the trees of the forest. He plants a cedar, and the rain nourishes it. Then it becomes fuel for a man. He takes part of it and warms himself. He kindles a fire and bakes bread. Also, he makes a god and worships it. He makes it an idol and falls down before it. Half of it he burns in the fire. Over the half he eats meat. He roasts it and is satisfied. Also he warms himself and says, Aha, I am worn. I have seen the fire. And the rest he makes into a god, his idol, and falls down to it and worships it. He prays to it and says, Deliver me, for you are my god. You see Isaiah there ridiculing the worship of an object, the same object really, that the man used as fuel for a fire to bake his bread to roast his meat. 
So whether a person has a sincere belief in their aberrant thought or whether they use it as a means to make money or gain influence and power, the warning is the same because the danger is the same. We can sort through the dimensions of guilt that the false teacher has later, whether he has deceived himself or whether he's a con man. But for the Christian in Colossae, Laodicea, and also Delaware, the warning remains, don't be taken captive by philosophy and empty deceit. Now, what about this piece on elemental spirits? What about that? There's a couple different ways to take this. I think no matter how we take it, we kind of wind up in the same place. If you're acquainted with chemistry and you hear elements, you might be thinking of carbon and oxygen and nitrogen and rubidium and astatine and all the rest of those things. But here, when we think of elements or elemental, we need to remember the sort of non-biblical, the pagan, maybe even animistic worldview that you can find all over the earth even today. Earth, wind, water, and fire. Even today, you can meet people from other cultures that are not influenced by a sort of Christian approach to the world uh, who think of the base natural world in these terms. I actually knew uh, before I moved here, I was living in South Carolina. If we have not met, that's where I just moved from. And there at the YMCA, I had a friend, uh, friend, his name is Kuru, and he's a shaman. He's a shaman. And uh, he would actually go swim in the pool. And I said, Kuru, why do you always swim? You don't do anything else here. Why do you swim? He says, because water is one of the elements that I must master. He's still thinking on that sort of elemental earth, fire, wind, and water sort of sensibility. And so whether Paul is thinking of a sort of disorganized pagan spirituality here, or maybe he's thinking of local gods that sort of represent these ideas of the elements, the result is pretty much the same. Christ is no mere elemental spirit. He's not part of an ultimate reality equal in power and rule with some other powers of different sorts like we might think of water and fire. You are to be captive to Christ alone. He's your guidance. He's your wisdom. Not these powers of matter and energy. Jesus Christ made those things. He made matter. He made energy. They're not co-eternal with him, we would say, in theology circles. They're not one of the three members of the Trinity. Oh No, only they are eternal. Them together, they are eternal with one another and nothing else. So why settle for less? Don't be taken captive by human wisdom. Don't be taken captive by human wisdom. Now, having stated the point, remember we, we had the payoff at the front. Having stated the point, Paul will explain how this is so. You've got three reasons not to be captive to human wisdom. He's going to give us three reasons. One, you'll see the identity of Jesus in verses 9 and 10. The identity of Jesus in verses 9 and 10. Two, you'll see the Colossians' separation from the world in Jesus in verses 11 and 12. And then three, you've got the mechanics of reconciliation in, in Jesus in verses 13, 14, and 15. So let's consider each of these. First up, you've got Jesus' identity. He's no mere elemental spirit of equal power or influence. He's not like fire that may have an equal to opposing force in water. It's not like that. No, he's above these things. He's the fullness of deity. That is, the fullness of God is in Christ. The fullness of God is in Christ. He's lacking nothing that pertains to God. 
The early Christians would say that Jesus is identical in substance or essence with God the Father and God the Holy Spirit. And of course, this is remarkable because he's also a man, lacking nothing pertaining to being a man. He's got a body. He ate food and he slept and he even lost his baby teeth, as my little kid's choir director said when I was coming up, which was a profoundly good theological statement. He lost his baby teeth. And while he has God's fullness... Paul says, you, dear Christians, have been made full of him. And he's tops when it comes to rule and authority over his church and overall creation. Why not be taken in by these outside thoughts? Why not be mastered by the little gods or the little powers of this world? Because as a Christian believer, you're full of the one who has authority over these things. This, of course, does not grant us mystical powers, superhuman powers. You don't get to command fire like you were a comic book character. But in submitting to the one that fire itself submits to, you you are now filled in him to be united to him and eventually reign over the new heavens and new earth with him. And I can't tell you a lot of specifics about what that's going to be like. I know because 1 Corinthians says so that we will judge angels. But I can tell you this. It's going to be fantastic. We're going to love it. So his identity as the one who has the fullness of God is one reason to stay true in Christ and not to add to him other things. So second, verses 11 and 12, you have the separation made from the world in Jesus. So let me read it again for the specifics of these verses. He says, verse 11, In him you were also circumcised with a circumcision made without hands by putting off of the body of flesh by the circumcision of Christ, having been buried with him in baptism, which you were also raised with him through faith in the powerful working of God who raised him from the dead. So let's talk about these markers Paul mentioned here. You've got circumcision and you've got baptism. If you've read through the Old Testament and the New, you'll see circumcision comes up a pretty good bit. Now, if you're wondering exactly what circumcision is, the specifics, you may ask your neighbor. I'm sure they'd be delighted to tell you all about it. At any rate, it was the physical marker for men of the Old Covenant beginning with Abraham. And often the enemies of Israel would be derogatorily referred to as uncircumcised. It was an irreversible marker of God's people. Later, the prophets, as they would prosecute the law, the Torah, against the disobedient Israel, they would call the people uncircumcised of heart. Meaning, yeah, you've got the outward sign. We all know that. But inwardly, you're the same as a Philistine, an Assyrian, a Babylonian, a Canaanite. Inwardly, you're a pagan idol worshiper. So that's the background here. So there's a circumcision here done without hands, ergo, performed by God through putting off of the flesh. Flesh here is used in the sense of the sinful self that has no desire to control its whims or its appetites or overcome sin. You'd kind of be familiar with that more in like a Romans, most likely. So it's not the removal of a piece of skin from the physical body of males here. It's the removal of the metaphorical sinful flesh from every believer in Christ. You're different now. Paul will flesh that idea out in a practical way we'll see in chapter 3. But next he refers to baptism. We had circumcision, we'll have baptism. The 
picture of our death to our old self by God's judgment and resurrection into life with Christ. So you don't have to turn, the, turn here. You can mark 1 Peter 3 later and just see this. this. is a really interesting argument that Peter makes where he makes the case that our baptism corresponds to the flood in Genesis. Baptism corresponds to the flood in Genesis, where God judged the sin of the world in the flood and then brought the world back out of it. Our judgment has fallen on Jesus, and we now live through Him, hoping in the promise of our resurrection as God delivered Jesus out of His death through resurrection. What I find interesting and worth calling out here for a minute is that Paul leans in on something that we as good evangelicals have not for some time looking back at baptism to help us remain confident in Christ. See, for years, uh, especially in the Bible Belt, uh, because of watching people who they got dunked and then they walked away from the faith, which we also talked about in Sunday school this morning, uh, we started telling people, oh, don't trust in your baptism. We started downplaying the significance of baptism. We all know people who presume upon the rights, the R-I-T-E-S, rights, of the faith to secure their salvation rather than Jesus. And obviously that's out of bounds. But here Paul says, look, remember you said, yes, I will do this thing commanded by Christ, this specifically Christian thing, to show everyone gathered in front of me that I am dead to this world and alive only in Christ. He says, don't forget that. Remember this. So pause here for a moment. Later today, when you're tempted to sin, because temptation doesn't take a break on Sundays, right? It doesn't take a break. If you've got kids that you got to church this morning, temptation did not take a break, did it? It did not. When you're tempted later today, you say back to your flesh, you say to the enemy, no, I will not. I told the world I'm a follower of Jesus now. I'm dead to that. God has judged me in Christ like He judged the world in the flood. I was baptized into His name. Nuh-uh, not today. Baptism, according to this text, is a weapon in our armory to fight against our own temptations. Against the spirit of the age, the elemental powers of the world, philosophy and empty deceit. So don't let it collect dust in the past. Use it. Remind yourself of that. You're separated from the world, Colossians, Paul is saying. God has set you apart invisibly, and then you took the visible step of making your faith in Christ known through being baptized. And that would have also brought scorn on a person in their world, as it still does in many places today. Many of the places we pray for, where missionaries serve, when a person gets baptized... That is a sentence of death, or at least exclusion from the community that they've known and loved and grown up in. So we have the identity of Christ, separation from the world, and now we have the mechanics of reconciliation in Jesus. I'll read this again for us as well, so go ahead and look at verse 13, and I'll read uh, it and the following two verses. And as you're locating it, uh, what I mean when I say the mechanics of reconciliation is the steps, the actions taken by Jesus to reconcile us to God, how it works. You know, we've got a couple mechanics in our church, right? You take your car to a mechanic, he makes your car work. That's what I mean here, how it works. So here we go, verses 13 through 15 again. And you, you who were dead 
in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them. Outside of Christ, we're spiritually dead. We're not spiritually really sick. We're not spiritually injured. We're spiritually dead. And when we trust in Him, when we believe that He is who He said He was, God makes us alive through His forgiveness. So the sin that separated us from the Lord is no longer counted against us. The Lord says, based on Jesus, I do not count those trespasses against this person. It's also compared right here to a debt. And we know what that is. It's something owed to be paid back. Here the debt is not financial, but it's legal. So you might think of a criminal's debt to society for the wrongs that he's done. Instead of the people versus the sinner, it's God versus the sinner. But God chooses instead to count their debt against Christ in His crucifixion. It's nailed to the cross. So God, in His own heavenly court, reckons it dealt with, case closed, verdict rendered, books are sealed. The sinner is declared not guilty. And because of that, the agents of your accuser, these rulers and authorities, which seem to be spiritual forces here, are disarmed. They have nothing to throw at you, the person confessing Christ. They got nothing. What are they going to say? Lord, look at Mr. Jones's sin. The Lord would reply, yeah, I see it. It's hung on Christ's shoulders on the cross. It's dealt with. The other side of this, of course, is that the believer has Jesus' own righteousness also counted to him or to her. So debt not counted to the sinner, but to Jesus. Sin counted to Jesus on the cross, not the sinner. This is the great doctrine of justification. This is the time that it comes up explicitly in Colossians. We receive it by faith precisely because we could have never earned it. We could have never earned it. God has said it is so, prompted by nothing outside of Himself, and through our belief, our sin is counted as punished in Christ, and His righteousness is counted as our own. We stand secure before the Lord because who will accuse us if this is the case? What's a spiritual ruler, authority, some demon going to say? To accuse the believing sinner before God is also to accuse God of his own actions being insufficient to save the sinner. God, your actions aren't good enough. Is the Lord going to listen to that? I don't think so. So then, believer in Christ... You belong to Christ, not the world, and not your past. You belong to Christ, not the world, and not your past. Whichever one of those you need to emphasize, I don't belong to the world, I don't belong to my past, just sit in that and rest in that, because you belong to Christ, not the world, and not your past. Why let the thoughts and ideas of something lesser than Jesus have such influence over you? Your past, it doesn't control you. Your future belongs to Jesus. 
I know your past probably creeps up and bothers you sometimes. Mine does. But it doesn't hold you captive. It doesn't hold you captive. Of course, there's many of our consequences of our actions that follow us. You know, for example, uh, a good friend of mine uh, leads a prison ministry. And just because somebody confesses Christ and that their sin before the eyes of God is now dealt with doesn't mean that they get to walk out of prison. But whatever you fell to yesterday, whatever temptation you've given into in the last 24 hours, that's not charted the course. You defy that just by being here to worship this morning. The immediate and the distant past are not the determiners of who you are. Furthermore, you don't belong to the world. So beware its influences on you. As believers, we are not doomed to repeat or participate in the sins of our families, our communities, or our cultures. And since we're not doomed to repeat these things, neither are we to find it acceptable to say, well, I'm from such and such people. That's just how we are. You know, me as a, me as a good Southerner, I can say, well, you know, we Southerners, we won't, we won't say it to your face, but man, we gossip. That's just how we... There's no excuse for that. I'm not doomed to live in that. That's excuse-making, which is an approach that we see to life outside of Christ, isn't it? So think about what Jesus' cross has meant in your life. In the Bible, forgiveness is such a thick concept. It's fascinating to see what all God has done to show us what it means that He no longer counts our sin against us. Three things I think come into play. You can see those up on the screen uh, that we just saw are these. Here's the big theology words for the day. Propitiation, expiation, and then justification, which we've discussed. All of these things were completed by Jesus on the cross on behalf of the Christian believer. Propitiation. God's posture towards the Christian is one of favor now, not judgment. God's wrath against sin is turned to favor, like Jim was praying earlier. Associated with that, you have expiation, and that is the removal of our sin, our guilt from us. So propitiation, if you're going, I'm never going to remember that. Propitiation, you remember, is God is now pro-us, propitiation. He favors us. Expiation, our sins are now expelled from us. And then finally, justification, we are just. We are righteous now in God's eyes because we have Jesus' own righteousness accounted to us. Consider these things. What the cross of Christ has done for us. If you're not a follower of Jesus, consider all that could be yours, all that's offered to you in Jesus' death. I don't have much to offer you. I can't even bring the right notes up here, right? But consider all that Jesus has. These things, they belong to believers in Jesus because He wants them to. This is His purpose as he's the Messiah, God's anointed one, this is what he was anointed to do. So if you're outside of Jesus, come lay yourself down and take up Christ. Come lay yourself down and take up Christ. Quit striving to cover up your sin and let your sin be covered completely in Christ once for all. Christian believer, if you're walking with Jesus this morning, quit thinking that you need to make it back up to Jesus. You cannot. That's the point. You can't. Stop trying. You can only give praise 
thanks and worship to him for all he has done and then rest in it. That's what I loved about that last song we did. It's so confidently restful and what the Lord has done. Your sin cannot be any more dealt with than it already has been in Jesus. What are you going to add to his cross? And since this is the case, reflect on what this means in your life. I'll give you one piece. Roll this over in your mind to consider and to pray over, Christian believer. Stop letting the world set the tone and the tenor of your approach to things. This is Christ's job. He's our tone setter. Stop letting the world set the tone and tenor of your approach to things. That's Christ's job. Stop taking your cues from the world. Whatever worldly influences are around you, put those aside. Put them aside. We often talk about and we pray over, we lament over how divided our country is, and I think we should do that. We should take those concerns to the Lord, just like the psalmists did. Lord, many are my enemies. He took the concern to the Lord. We should take this division to the Lord. But if we're really honest, if we're really honest, even though we don't want to acknowledge it, we often recognize that the division runs right through Jesus' church as well, not just our country. And we know, brothers and sisters, that this should not be the case. How are we to present a compelling case for the goodness found in Christ if we ourselves cannot let him set the tone for how we approach the world and even each other? You know, to be sure, there will be people who will slap Jesus' name on anything to try to justify it. And if you do a Google search for any kind of bad idea that comes to your mind and then add Christian or Jesus to it, you are going to find someone with a social media account trying to explain why Jesus would affirm their sin, their base desires, their inclinations. We all know that's to be the case, and that's just not the point here. I'm not advocating accepting things as legitimate expressions of faith in Christ that are sinful. No, those things have, you know, what they've done is they've taken Jesus' name in a vain way. And I'm not saying don't confront that sort of thing sometimes. But we confess Christ. We don't screech Him. That's the world's tone. So be careful before you repost that thing, before you send that email forward, things of that nature that are inflammatory, that work us up. That's letting the world set the tone and the tenor for how we interact with one another. When asked what the greatest commandment was, Jesus said, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And then he also said that the second greatest commandment was this, love your neighbor as yourself. And we as a culture need to confess, though we're not doomed to participate in this, that we're absolutely terrible at that, loving our neighbor as ourselves. The ways we speak to others and, other, and of others are not ways that we would appreciate if we were the subject of those conversations. So regardless of how the world does it, whatever protester you see on the news representing whatever ideology, whatever philosophy he might represent or she might represent, whatever inflammatory things you see on social media, stay away from those methods. Stay away from those methods. 
You won't find Jesus doing this in the Gospels. And you won't find the early believers in the early church doing this in Acts. And if you want to go read those and have a discussion about when Jesus confronts something, how that's different, how when Paul speaks into a situation in Acts that that's different, please go read it and come talk to me about it. And I'm happy to do that. I'm happy to do that. I'm glad to spend that time in the Scripture with you. And we know, of course, loving our neighbor as ourselves, that this goes double for how we treat other Christian believers. Other Christians are people who have propitiation, expiation, justification accomplished for them. Will I treat someone else in a lesser way than Christ himself did? That seems unwise. And of course, someone will raise the objection, what if someone says they're a Christian, but I'm not sure? Well, you can actually use those ideas. One way, you know, we, we all, you know, I'm not sure if this person's a believer in Christ. They say they are, but I'm really not sure where's the fruit. These are all fine questions to ask. But one of the ways that we can help suss that out instead of wallowing in the lack of understanding and the confusion of it is we can use those ideas of propitiation, expiation, justification. If you can only remember one, just stick with one. One tool is better than none. And you can say this, friend, would you say that God had wrath towards you that's now been turned to favor? If you can't remember that one, you could say, has God removed your sin from you? Are you justified before the Lord? Are you counted not guilty in His court because of the work of Christ and nothing in you? If the person says, no, I don't need that, then you have your answer. And if the person says, of course, then you have something in common to talk about. When we think of all the cross of Jesus has done, we're able to pursue satisfaction in God. We're able to recall that we have peace and confidence in Him. The cross can't be undone, and its benefits can't be unapplied. The circumcision is made without hands. You're going to take it away with your hands? And does this not quiet our spirits then before the provocations of the world? What is the world going to throw at somebody who has the cross? What do you have to feel threatened about before the world? Christ is for you. Who can be against you? Let that realization calm your heart this morning. I don't know what individual cares everybody brings. You know, we, we pray as a church together, so you know, I have some idea of what different people are dealing with, but not everybody comprehensively, right? It's not that the world doesn't have troubles. It absolutely does. My family has troubles. We've got stuff we've got to deal with. We're not exempt from that. But it's that Jesus is so much greater than all of these things. Is he not? So remember that. Think on that. Let that take up space in your mind. Let that occupy our conversation that we have together. And pray that God would help you appreciate it more tomorrow than you do today. So let me pray for us one more time, and we'll worship one more time in song. Well, Father God, I, I, I said to you and in front of these good people that, uh, that you picked a crackpot, and I'm certainly weak this morning. That's been exposed. And I revel in that exposure, Lord. 
because it's not me. It's not me. If I said something clever, that's from you. If I made an error, that's me. Because your word is perfect. Your word speaks over us. Your word speaks into us. Your word is our confidence. It points us to Christ. Spoken by your Holy Spirit is spoken in by your Holy Spirit. Help us, Lord, live in this world as those not taken captive. Lord, the way I would put it in a crude way is we don't have to participate in the crazy. The lack of control, the disturbance, the confusion out there in the world, Lord, we don't have to participate in that. We've been freed from the chaos because Christ took our sin to the cross and it's judged in you when we are no longer bound to our past. We're no longer bound to this world, doomed to repeat the mistakes of our families, of our communities, of our cultures. We are not a prisoner to history. No, we are a bondservant to Christ. So Lord, let that truth speak over your people gathered this morning. Despite my weakness, We love you, Lord. Please receive our worship, and it's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.